Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Lee Cantor here. I got a special guest with me today. I got Joey Klein. He is with JLL, and JLL is one of the largest commercial real estate firms in the world. And we're going to be doing a special episode where we're going to be talking to some of Atlanta's uh, most exciting early stage companies. Welcome, Joey. How hey, you been? Lee. How you doing? Uh, this is an exciting time, exciting show. Uh, you brought with you uh, several of Atlanta's uh, early stage company kind of movers and shakers here. I did, and I'm, I'm excited to be on the other side of this. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting uh, a change here, but <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, normally uh, being... Right, you've been other, a guest. Yes. A host is a different thing. Uh, yeah, but, uh, you know, it's nice to be in, in control of it as opposed to... <laughs> you think you're in control? Oh, well, we'll, we'll Wait, see. You don't know what these guys are going to say. <laughs> Anything can happen. That's the fun part. <laughs> so who'd you bring with you today? So we have got three guests um, all across uh, some of the, the best emerging companies in Atlanta. We've got Andrew Ross today, who's a co-founder with Local Industries. Uh, we've got Sean Henry, who is a co-founder with Stored. And Stephen Wegner, uh, who is uh, Senior Director of Operations at Knock. And who do you want to kick off the show with? Andrew. I think we're going to go first with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Awesome. Awesome to be here. Yeah, I. Uh, it was. I'm. I'm. If if you're a little bit tired, I can understand that. I don't know about you, but at this point. Elections are like uh, football games to me, where you just want to see what the score is. And so I find myself going down this refresh Twitter rabbit hole. But yeah. m- maybe that's just me. No, no, it's been exhausting. <laughs> I'm kind of glad that it's over. Um, hopefully, uh, hopefully your guy won or girl. Uh, we're, we're, we're not going to express any opinions, more just an acknowledgement that now we can all breathe at least a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And our uh, mailboxes won't be filled with four color uh, postcards for a while. Uh, yeah, maybe maybe a couple of weeks. Um, so, Andrew, this is not the first time that you've done this show. That's right. I was here about a year ago. So you, you did this a year ago. Um, you were also on a, uh, another radio show, Georgia Business Radio, back in March of this year. But in early stage company time, that's a long time. A lot can happen in a year. A lot can happen in six months. So what what don't we know about you that's been going on since you've done those two shows? It, you're right. It, it's a short period of time, but it's a long, long phase for a business our size. Um, I think a, a few things have been going on. One is we've been practitioners. Um, I think we've kind of came across this idea of change marketing, and we've been able to now apply that to different industries. So we started in consumer packaged goods and retail, and in the last year, we've been able to work with airline companies, uh, finance, healthcare, um, uh, and so just being able to apply the model to more industries and more companies and, and validate it. Um, and also to that point, I think one thing that we've seen change, not just with us, but in the world is, uh, the folks that we talk to, we don't really have to convince to uh, the idea, convince them anymore that they need to engage their employees, that that's sort of a secret <laughs> weapon to survive in the new economy. And uh, but the question now is, um, how do you measure it? Like, how do you really measure all the change? So I want to go do this, but I need a business case. How do I make that case to to the company? And so we've d- been developing some products and models to try and attempt to measure that change. Measure things like employee belief. Me- measure um, 
the impact of business transformation. So um, come a long way, I suppose, since since we were here last. So you, you threw out a couple terms, uh, change marketing, engaged employees, and I feel like in, in our respective industries, industries, we can get bogged down in the jargon that we use every day, and mm-hmm. we know exactly what it means. For the people out there who aren't as familiar with those terms, what do they mean and how do they apply to what your business does every day? Right, so I'll, I'll take a quick step back. So um, myself and a gentleman named Neil Bedwell, my other co-founder, we used to be marketers. We worked at places like Coke and Adidas and and uh, Airbnb, and you know, we were creating advertising and campaigns to sell products and ideas to consumers. And oftentimes, uh, if anybody's in that business, I'm sure they've experienced this, you go in and you have a great idea, and it's not the idea that uh, is the problem. It's all of like the corporate blades in the blender, all of the people and policies and politics that... And bureaucracy. Bureaucracy that tends to destroy good ideas, even in really... Uh, kind of ambitious places like Coke. And so um, we decided that that was a more interesting problem to solve. Instead of just making the TV commercial or the website, we actually wanted to go and see what's causing this idea to lose steam inside organizations. And I think what we found at the end of the day is, is it's people. It's really the people are the blades in the blender. It's misaligned incentives. It's things like bureaucracy and politics. Is it fear? It's fear, um, lack of belief, um, not thinking that your job matters. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about that right now. Um, and, uh, there's a lot of people just feel like they're not making an impact. They don't see it. Um, so you can have these sort of toxic cultures that eat away at ideas. And what we found, um, even the consultancies have certain ways that they typically approach those problems. We take a different approach. We use the same thing we used on the outside to sell ideas and products to people. We, we use marketing. So the idea is employees don't cease to become human beings when they walk through the door of their office. They're still people. They still make decisions based on emotion. They're rational creatures. And um, they have to believe in what they're doing. Um, so you can't just train people and tell them what and when and how. You have to actually tell them why and why it matters for them. And so the, the ability to get this messaging across, um, it's, it's one thing to do it you know, with an, with an outside resource uh, from B2B or B2C perspective. It's a much more intimate thing to go in and do this with really what is the most precious resource that companies have, and that's human capital. And so how have you been able to get past, um, you know, maybe some skepticism about outside resources, um, maybe productivity issues um, that you find are you know, you've put data behind that are bringing a company down in terms of what their employees are and are not getting done. Mm-hmm. Have you gone and gotten past those two um, uh, two things? Well, I, you, you mentioned the term human capital, a good piece of jargon. I mean, even that alone <laughs> just says the mindset that a lot of companies right, are exactly. operating with. They're like, there's this agent principal relationship where I pay you and you show up and like that's it and that's just not enough anymore to get people engaged enough to uh, help you through a trend a transformation so when i talk about transformation it could be um uh, you know you're getting acquired or you're acquiring it could be you're growing really fast or you're downsizing Um, it could be you're launching a new piece of technology or process into an organization and you need people to adopt that 
Um, and at the key of all of those transformations is people. So the first thing to get around that is to really focus on the human beings and the organization, listen to them, and things become a lot more obvious after that. It's really the same approach you take in consumer marketing. You learn about your audiences and things become a lot more obvious and how you need to communicate with them. Um, the other piece is what I mentioned earlier, the measurement of it. It's not just a fluffy thing anymore. Like a feel good. It's not just a feel good thing uh, that these, this outside agency is bringing to you. Um, there needs to be some hard math behind. And an ROI that yeah. you can point to. That's right. It has Having engaged employees affects top line drivers like productivity, quality of work, but it also affects bottom line drivers like efficiency, retention. I mean, the cost of losing and hiring employees is one of the biggest companies face. So, um, and getting new ideas actually commercialized into market and not bogged down in meetings and meetings that meetings and conferences and bureaucracies. Right. I mean, there's, there's definitely something to organizational design, um, how the work gets done. But again, a lot of that is really driven by mindset, culture, belief, whether or not the, the employees believe that they can grow at the company, that they make the impact, that their work matters. Um, if that's not there, all the training in the world isn't really going to help the change stick. They'll never really be able to take ownership and get to that new normal. Because they really don't believe. There's a like a, a incongruence with trust. They don't really trust the management. It could yes, it could it could just be um, something as simple as uh, that. We know why it's good for the company, but no one ever told us why it was good for me. How is this going to help me have a job in five years? Mm-hmm. How is this going to help me have better relationships and make, you know, make a more pleasant workspace? So when, when transformation occurs, oftentimes the way that it's talked about to employees is company serving. It's, it's saying how this transformation is going to make the company stronger and right. more efficient. They never tell the truck driver or the gate worker or the guy picking through trash at the recycling plant who really has no stake in the company why they should embrace this change. And so we just take, again, that approach uh, like you would on the outside. You look at con- the audience, you kind of chop them up and figure out what makes them tick, and then you figure out what's the best way to get them through this transformation. So, okay, you, you are clearly very passionate about this. You can tell in your tone of voice and your vocabulary. I'm going to read a quote from one of your clients on your website. Local industries is different than any other agency or consultancy I've worked with. We consider them a part of our core team and could not have transformed our program without their leadership. That's pretty high praise. It makes total sense why you put that on the front page of your website. <laughs> so I think the, the question is twofold. One is why did you and Neil – see the need for what you do? And two, why are you guys so particularly awesome at this to elicit a response like that from a client? Well, the the business was born from us fun- being in dysfunctional companies our whole careers. Um, you know, big, great companies, but often, ha- again, have all those bureaucracies. So we experienced this firsthand. I'm, I'm sure a lot of you are sitting in your car or at your desk thinking like, yes, of course, I'm in this right now. Most employees are not happy in their jobs. I think the latest Gallup poll said over 70% are just like actively disengaged. Um, And so that sort of angst in the workplace is really what's spawning this this company. That's the need that we're addressing. from a business perspective, that angst is really why companies are not able to move forward. It's a very costly thing. If it feels fluffy, but like I said, when you're able to measure it, there's a lot of money being left on the table by not engaging your employees. Um, but f- isn't it interesting that 70% of employees are dissatisfied in some manner, right? 
Yes. Then you have these companies that are big, huge companies. Do they think that they're seventy percent of their employees are dissatisfied? Like, is there really? Of course kind, not. There, <laughs> so, you know, you're saying two thirds are dissatisfied, but it's not our our. We're in the one third pile. Sure. Yeah. Everybody <laughs> thinks that it's it's better than it is, and you know, in all honesty. Um, we spend less time convincing companies that they have a problem. I think a couple of years ago there was a lot of sort of right, willful ignorance, right. bli- yeah, living in bliss that, oh, everything mm-hmm. is okay, and maybe you do an engagement survey once a year and it gives you some indicators, but, I mean, nobody really does anything with those those surveys. They're not actionable. Um, so, I, yeah, it's it's definitely a, a, a challenge that's still there. It's going to continue to get worse and worse. But the good news is that companies, I think, are more tuned to the reality. And they are now understanding. Now the question isn't, are employees unhappy or do we need to engage them? It's more, how do we do it? What's really the methodology and how much money should I be spending and how long is it going to take? These are the questions that we're really working through our client uh, with with our clients on right now versus convincing people that employees matter. So the trend is going in the right direction, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, how it gets done, I think, to your, the second part of your question, um, we really, these kinds of problems are usually attacked by large consultancies. They, they're usually attacking challenges on the inside of companies. And external consumer-facing agencies are, rarely get the chance to look at that. Um, the, we're lucky enough to get invited to address those questions, but we don't do it with the same sort of academic theoretical approach that larger consultancies use. We use tried and true marketing. We use consumer grade marketing techniques, storytelling. Um, and that's how we, we focus on the human beings in the company and get them through these transformations. So can you give a, we, we, we've sort of been talking high level mm-hmm. about you know, what issues your clients have when it's right for an organization to work with local industries. What does an actual engagement with you look like? Obviously, without giving away any confidential client names, can you walk us through a recent engagement, talk to us about the problem that client had, what you did about it, and what the result was? Yeah, sure. Um, So one of the fairly typical um, projects that we apply change marketing to is technology integrations or like enterprise technology launches within a company. Um, So for example, we need everybody to use a new payroll system or a a new time tracking tool, something like that, right? Um, So we recently had a a large Atlanta-based client that was launching a tool like that to employees. The interesting thing is that the frontline employees have been asking for this tool for, for years, and it had all the features and functionality that they needed. Um, but when we dug into it and started talking to the managers, what we found is that while that tool was helping frontline employees, it was taking a lot of leverage away from the managers. They weren't really able to manage their employees' time and sort of incentivize um, their, their labor. And, and so... Um, if we would have gone out to that management group and just touted the tool and how great it was, you would have seen real tissue rejection. We would not have been recognizing the fact that um, there is a cultural barrier to them adopting the technology and nothing to do with the tool itself. So um, we developed a, a fully integrated advertising campaign that ran internally. Um, and again, it was focused on not just frontline employees, but there was also a special program, special group of content and reach out program to the managers 
to, to try and alleviate some of their fear that they're having around that change. Um, uh, we're also doing some work f uh, for a large financial company right now, and uh, they uh, are producing a lot of thought leadership content, but um, it's not really being read. <laughs> um, and uh, the reason that it's not being crafted in the way that it needs to be crafted is because of internal e egos and and kind of legacy processes. And so we are going, we are helping them think through what's the best way to transform the marketing department that's producing this thought leadership into more of a, a newsroom where you're able to move very quickly. There's an editorial process that's in place and the content is constantly being um, uh, critiqued from a uh, sort of a lead generation perspective, making sure it's really going to drive value for the company and not just sort of float out in the ether. Right. Now, when you're talking about like build advertising campaigns internally, so is are you distributing this um, these ads or whatever you're calling these um, pieces? Is it through their blog, their internal, like on their portal? Like, how does that kind of content get distributed to the rank and file of the organization? So yes, um, it is through some of those uh, established channels within the company. Every company sort of has different channels, different newsletters right. or blogs or digital screens. Um, there's also uh, team huddles and town halls and sort of group conversations. But I, I'd say the best way that we found to deliver a lot of this information is peer-to-peer from each other. So if it's coming from an outside consultancy or from the top-down um, it's not always welcomed um, or trusted, but when it's coming from my friend that works in the desk next to me that I know and, and says, hey, this is all right, check it out, I'm probably going to do it. So there's a lot of um, uh, engaging the employees and finding sort of the believers and early adopters within the company. So you're like kind of finding influencers within the organization yeah, that are yeah. the spreaders of these uh – concepts that's right and it's it's again it's the same concept of influence right. marketing or you know the sneezers i think there was a marketing term that mm -hmm. to use the people that disperse kind of uh germs mm -hmm. but that translates here in this manner so you're trying to identify those players that are the good sharers that are well kind of networked that can take some of this information and they become kind of ambassadors sure yeah absolutely again you're borrowing a pretty tried and true Right. technique These are all from marketing. consumer marketing exactly. and you're just applying it inside it's sort of an obvious discovery i feel silly even saying it but right but these are new done. things they're just being aimed a little at a different universe instead of the universe is a mass market the universe is the employees of the company that's right i mean and maybe a simple way of thinking about it is that they're just another audience segment right the exactly um so, uh, yeah, we, we, one of the um, concepts of change marketing is there's obviously the marketing component, but there's also this change management piece. Mm -hmm. So it's, we're kind of picking the best bits of change management and marrying it to consumer marketing. With and, the best techniques of consumer marketing. Right, right. And, and one of the, one of the uh, techniques from change management is that sort of change network approach where you're finding these influencers, you're finding the the activators that want to push change forward. They don't, th it's less about them taking the change and doing something with it. They actually want to make it and provoke it. And so finding those people allows us to get to that sort of tipping point right. where faster. We, yeah. And we don't right. really have to do as much. It's the human beings at the company that are actually driving it forward. And then that will be more effective. Yeah. It's, it's, it's the only it, way it happens that, organically. It doesn't happen from, 
you know, somebody telling you to do something. That's right. You can't force people it's to peer care. It's peer-to-peer. Yeah, it's right. peer-to-peer. You cannot force people to care, um, and that applies in the workplace. And so um, having that sort of organically happen and, and lighting a fire and finding those folks, allowing them to do it, um, that's a big part of a lot of our programs. And that's the secret sauce, right, to be able to do that in an efficient manner to help that change spread rapidly. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely one of the um, sort of pillars of a lot of the programs we do is getting those individuals to take ownership of the transformation and let them drive. And at that point, you're really just supporting them um, rather than uh, selling to them, if you will. So what, what's interesting to me about your engagement with a client is that you have to understand your client's deepest, darkest secrets in, in regards to why their organization is or is not working. And so you have to play a bit of armchair psychologist, mm-hmm. and you have to throw in a little bit of parental tough love in there as well to guide them to the right uh, solution. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're in a, you know, a client relationship with them, right? right. You're a service provider. Right. So h- how do you draw that uh, – how do you balance that? Um, part of it is the approach um, – even when we were doing consumer-facing work, um, most often we would really try and embed in that company and truly understand them. Um, I think that's part of any relationship, regardless of the product or service that you're giving to the uh, the customer. Um, and they're more than happy to tell you what's wrong there. I, I promise you. Um, if you just ask the right questions, um, then they will tell you what's wrong there. And if you talk to enough people you'll start to see the trends. Uh, One of the products that we've created um, is a quantitative tool to measure that in more mass scale. So um, we definitely like to go in and have conversations and sort of marry that with some quantitative work. And the, the quantitative work actually spits out sort of a cultural blueprint for the company that says, you know, uh, how do companies feel, believe around this, what's their level of belief around this transformation or around their ability to grow here or make an impact? Um, What sort of results do we have around adoption? Do they know what they're supposed to be doing? Do they know how? And then also around opportunity, are they being given the chance to actually live this new normal or, or is is it a situation where they went to the town hall, had the rah-rah, and then they went back to their desk and right. nothing and new happened? Right, and was business as usual. Right. right. Yeah. And so um, what it, it, it kind of spits out this blueprint that essentially says, here's where you're strong. That's where you can lean on when you're doing these transformations. But also here's where you're weak. Here's where the tissue rejection will happen, regardless of what the change is. Um, and if you don't address that piece, then you're going to do all this work and kind of wonder why no one logged in. Um, so th- it's a it's a combination of product, but also um, actually talking to your employees, which you'd be very surprised how few right. leaders actually have oh, those conversations. That, that's part of why your business is doing well, right? I, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So we because this is a show about early stage companies, um, we talked about some of the organizations you've worked at before this. You know, generally large established companies. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious about your entrepreneurial journey and what has surprised you um, about being a co-founder. Well, I I was actually a freelancer when I was 18 and did design and development for years before um, I was kind of lucky enough to have a mentor teach me about marketing and, and storytelling and things like that. So I kind of have always had that sense of wanting to work for myself. But I I think, especially in the last year, um, 
the realization that my work gets better when I invite other people into the into the conversation and that can be clients it can be our team members some of whom are 10 15 years younger than me and um and they always seem to make it better so going from that sort of sole proprietor kind of mercenary out there by yourself um into truly growing a business and the difference between that um that's really been my big big learning over the last couple of years and i'm certainly better for it um and enjoying the collaboration right now. Well, it's it's fun to be. Uh, obviously, I work for a very large organization now, but um, you know, before that, I've always worked at small companies, and that mission-driven sense of purpose. You just really, it's tough to get anywhere else um, yeah. when you've got fifteen to twenty people in a room, um, and it's kind of you against the world. Uh, it's it's a real motivating, you know, light a fire. Let's go out and conquer the world. You, you definitely live with urgency all the time as a, <laughs> as a small businessman, uh, or woman. And, um, but that's good. And I, I actually think that, um, I, I've have spoken to a few people recently who have been at big companies and now deciding, do they want to stay at big companies or go do their own thing? And, um, uh, I usually advise them to try and try and do their own thing because I feel like even in a big and big company, having that urgency behind you, that's really what big companies need to survive now. That's the sort of mindset that a lot of our clients are trying to engender with with their employees. Um, so it, it's it's helpful with small businesses, but it's I think even going to be more helpful in large companies in the future. Well, I think that for for large companies to keep up with how nimble um, early stage companies are, there has to be a focus on talent with that type of entrepreneurial fire. Mm-hmm. Um, that even if you work at a behemoth Fortune five hundred. You've got to have folks that are able to take ownership and throw good ideas out there, not just follow the rules and be part of a bureaucracy. Um, I think that the the days of um, the days of follow the leader and and really kind of making something out of your career are totally over and are mm-hmm. never coming back. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think that's again that's a lot of the impetus for clients speaking with us is they see it now, they know it's going to happen if they didn't before. And they are starting to understand that having the right people, the right mindset is really the most profitable, fastest way to, to win in the what you would call maybe the new human economy um, that we're moving into. So let's say that someone is listening to this and everything you say is resonating. They say, I have to talk to local industries immediately. What is the best way to get in touch with you? Uh, you can go to the website and uh, there's a, a link to, I think, info at localindustries.com. So it's localindustries.com? That's right. Plural. Lo- right. Localindustries, plural, uh, dot com. Uh, check us out there. We have a few case studies, um, a couple of videos, and, um, a- of course, that link to contact us. That's great. Well, thank you so much, Andrew, for sharing your story. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. It was great. All right. Who's next, Joey? Okay. Next, we have got uh, Sean Henry, co-founder of Stored. How you doing today? Doing well. Thanks again for having me. Great to be back. And, and just to be clear, uh, we're going to tell people how to contact you, but Stored is, um, as with so many technology companies this day, has dropped some vowels. So how do you spell it? Yeah, S-T-O-R-D. So we're now Stored.com, S-T-O-R-D.com. And um, so, you know, Andrew was talking about managing people and uh, having them part of the team who are maybe 10 or 15 years younger, you have had a very unique journey in that you are basically right out of college and you are running your own company. 
Yeah, absolutely. So when he was commenting that, I was actually thinking the opposite of managing people <laughs> 10, 15 years older in, in some cases uh, has definitely been interesting, especially uh, the period we're in now, which is more the high growth period. We've added, we've almost tripled our team in the last eight, nine months and added so many different people that it really adds uh, exactly what he was talking about, that management piece and getting to know different personalities. So how how have you been prepared for this as an entrepreneur? Because you you graduated Georgia Tech one, two years ago? Have not graduated Georgia You've Tech. You've not graduated Georgia Tech. No, Amazing. started the company while I was a student. Awesome. So are you still a student? Not at the moment. <laughs> uh, See college dropout. Hey, you know, found something that's working. Why <laughs> not? Three different ways to find it. <laughs> yeah. I, there's a lot of very successful college dropouts out there. <laughs> um, okay. So you are at the very early part of your career. You're running a company that has raised almost $3 million. Yeah, just under $3 million to date. Okay. And you are having to go from a college environment to the real world and you know interacting with people who are your um, direct reports and that are probably older than you. How are you – some people have an issue with that. Some people don't. Um, for someone who might have a little bit of a hard time getting used to that if you're used to reporting to folks who are farther along in their career, how are you building that camaraderie? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and it doesn't apply just to our team. It applies to uh, customers as well. Uh, all the time, we're selling to VPs of supply chain at massive organizations who are late 50s. They've been at that company their entire career, and they have a team of 200 under them. So when a, someone like me who is much younger than them, maybe half their age, walks in the room, it definitely causes a shock at some points. But I would actually say what's exciting is – there's a lot of innovation and in technology now. And obviously, when you think of a tech startup, uh, people tend to think of younger people innovating and starting a new company and kind of like we were talking about already, them against the world. And so when we do have that uh, youthful vibe to our team and we're able to bring that into a really large organization and their supply chain team, they actually get really excited about it. And it's something very cool that they want to latch on to and they want to bring as part of their culture and part of their team as a supply chain team at a massive organization. Well, I, I would imagine that is part of your competitive advantage um, because you bring that youthful exuberance, whether it is the youth of age of employees or age of the company, and just the, the nimbleness and new ideas that we were talking about that you really um, – you can get it with a larger company, maybe, but it's, it, is, it has to be front and center with an early stage company because that's the only way you survive. Yeah, absolutely. So I think what we've done well is also just bridging the gap between uh, technology and logistics and putting the right people around the team. So like you were talking about, I think, I mean, we have someone on our team who's mid, late 30s. So there's definitely people 10, 15 years older than me on the team. And it was a shift in our, our customer interaction when we're able to start going into those meetings and having someone who has the same experience as the buyer we're talking to. But it's still, like you said, it brings that uh, youthful exuberance that gets them really excited. And so I think what we've done well is surrounding ourselves with not only the technology community. I mean, we have institutional investors from San Francisco all the way to Atlanta. So we're very ingrained in the technology community, but also the right team and the right people from logistics. So our first investors started a company called Access America Transport and merged into Coyote Logistics, had a huge exit to UPS. And so bringing people like that or bringing people who worked at Coyote or worked at other large uh, 
enterprise-type logistics companies really adds a lot of credibility to us uh, as a youthful team or as a technology company. Because at the end of the day, right now, we're moving over $100 million of product a month through warehouses for our customers. So we have to have a, a lot of their trust. It's not just an easy software you log into once and decide if you like it. It's really the core of how they operate their business. So trust is huge. Well, And, and lest anyone listening think that age defines you, I'm going to read some recent headlines about Stored. Stored successfully unlocks warehouse industry with company Pivot. Scheller undergraduate named Forbes 30 under 30. That's obviously referring to you. Um, and anyone who's familiar with Forbes 30 under 30, you know, at the Atlanta Business Chronicle, 30 under 30 is a pretty big deal. Forbes 30 under 30, that's a really big deal. Stored is building on an, an on-demand warehouse service for companies competing with Amazon. Atlanta-based Stored raises $2.4 million for warehouses on demand. This is all in the past year and a half. Yeah, definitely been a lot of progress in the last year and a half. Yeah, but uh, before we get too far more into this, can you talk about stored, like what you're doing and what the service is and how you're serving the marketplace? Yeah, absolutely. So our goal at stored is really to help companies distribute their products more efficiently at scale. And so it actually came from a, a business experience of mine. So I, from a really young age, have always started different e-commerce type companies. Um, I had a company that was essentially importing, exporting automotive OEM parts into the U.S. while I was in high school. Uh, going into college in Scheller, I actually convinced the CEO of this billion-dollar-a-year manufacturer based out of Germany that I want to essentially work on your team in the supply chain organization. And so I worked in Germany, France, Mexico, Canada, Atlanta, Alabama, uh, all while I was in high school and college before starting stored in are you from Georgia? Yeah, born and raised in Atlanta. So, so you just contacted here. randomly some guy? Well, I was importing products right. from them. He lived in Germany, and then after I already knew him, he moved to Atlanta. He knew you were a high school person. I don't know about that at the time. <laughs> um, I'm sure after a little bit, he, he did know that. Um, so after bugging him for a job for probably two and a half years, I essentially worked at this company doing what we call the position lean management and supply chain optimization. And really realized that at their company, which is a billion-dollar-plus manufacturer, they have 23 factories in 18 countries across the globe, that the same problem pertains to everyone's supply chain, which it's very siloed how a company deals with their inventory. It's we have a warehouse in this market, we have one in this market. So they market. actually have a warehouse. Sorry, third-party warehouse. A third-party warehouse. So they're dealing with a logistics company who holds their inventory for them. And right. in every single city, it's a different logistics and so they got to keep track of all of that. Exactly. So there's 9,000 warehouses in the U.S. alone, and 35% of those warehouses don't have any warehouse management system in their building, and another 19% of them consider an Excel spreadsheet their inventory management system. And then so in any given one of those centers, there's multiple clients that the stuff comes and goes through. Exactly. So one of these uh, third-party logistics companies commonly referred to as 3PLs will have 50 clients. And so if you look back in 2004, roughly 44% of enterprises were only using warehouses that they owned themselves to move their product. And then in 2012, 86% were using third-party warehouses. Mm -hmm. That's because everyone's trying to compete with Amazon. They're trying to get more product in more places closer to their customer. And if you're going to go build distribution centers, it's a huge capital outlay, hundreds of millions of dollars per facility. Rather, then go contract with a third-party warehouse who has 10 other customers and can do it on a much more flexible cost model or just be more localized. And what I always like to say is literally everything in this room went through a warehouse at some point. There's $13.4 trillion of product go through warehouses a year. So every company out there is using warehousing. Right. 
but the market itself is so fragmented. So you have 9,000 facilities in the U.S., and roughly 6,000 of those are independent or small-sized businesses. And so we work with anyone from a Fortune 500 who has over 150 warehouses across the U.S. run by over 120 different companies. So the way they manage their inventory, manage these contracts, decide how to move their product is so siloed that what we do is we actually go out to the warehouses, to these third-party warehouses, and we partner with them, and we say, listen, we can drive you guys new revenue opportunities so we can ship product through your facility. We can make you more efficient by giving you our software. So today, 35% don't have any software whatsoever. We can actually make you guys more efficient by enabling you with storage warehouse management software and our technology. And ultimately, we can drive you more business. So then we're able to go back to mid to large businesses and even small businesses who are looking to scale and say, now, right now through about 258 facilities nationwide, we can distribute your products more efficiently through one dashboard for inventory management, order management, and ultimately analytics where we can really align ourselves with an organization so that we're not your warehouse in New Jersey saying, you should keep all your product here because this is how I'm paying my lease. We can look at all your data, shipment data real time and say, you should actually move your product from New Jersey to Pennsylvania because this is how much faster you're going to get product to your customers or this is how much money And there's you're space save. available here. Exactly. Like so it's we, an on-demand. Like I can look and see their space. This is a better choice. Exactly. And so I can we be have, nimble and... We have two things. We have uh, technology to give them better visibility, but also the capacity to actually back that up and give them the ability to make actionable decisions. And like you just hit on, it's all flexible is one of the benefits. We're not a three, 10-year contract. We're a pay-as-you-use It's an on-demand, the way that everything is nowadays. Exactly. So if they want to test a new market or there's peak season for retail right now, like we have one of the largest toy manufacturers out there contact us because all of a sudden they have to add 40% distribution capabilities during Christmas season to get products to customers. So we were able to really flex with the supply chains of these companies. So I would imagine, and so look, you, you obviously have a background in this city and state because you grew up here, you went to college here. Um, but, you know, Georgia is also a logistics powerhouse. Our ports, our interstates, our airport. And so I'd imagine that, you know, besides this being a good place to grow a company um, from a talent perspective. Help me understand why Georgia and particularly Atlanta has been really good for stored and really good for your particular vertical. Yeah, well, like I said, we've raised money from a lot of different markets, including San Francisco, and we've been really adamant the whole time that Atlanta is the best place for us to be. And it's actually a competitive advantage for us because not only are we in the backyards of the Fortune 500s who we want to be our customers, where we can walk down the street from our office at Colony Square and be in any of these offices with these large companies who are our customers. But it's also a great market for logistics talent. So companies like, again, Coyote Logistics or UPS or all these different brands, the majority of them have some sort of headquarters in Atlanta. So it's a huge competitive advantage for us when it comes to recruiting, comes to people with experience, whether it's from uh, a supply chain technology company like Manhattan Associates or UPS, this market has so many people ingrained in logistics that when I got to San Francisco, it's great for investment capital and for customers and partners, but they don't have the resources to build a great logistics company that a, a logistics market like Atlanta does. This to me is one of the ex most exciting developments that's happening in Atlanta. So I grew up here as well. Um, I lived in St. Louis and D.C. for a little bit, and I came back a little bit earlier in the decade. And when I came back here in 2011, it, it seemed to me that there was still this sort of ingrained um, 
southern humility about not wanting to tout how amazing we are, right? About not wanting to scream from the rooftops, we are this amazing technology center, that people discover it. And now that I've found, um, as we kind of get to the end of the decade, and so many technology companies have either started here or moved a regional operation here, that the whole world is finally catching on, that Atlanta is an amazing place, not just to have a Fortune 500 or a Fortune 1000 location, but a really great place to start a company as well. Um, as a founder, you know, from the start, you're kind of doing everything. And then you delegate to different divisions and kind of get things off of your plate. How have you found the talent in this city is able to help you really focus on what you need to do um, and really be the founder as opposed to the everything the company needs? Yeah, it's a great question. It, it goes a little bit back to just having the right experience that there's other companies to look to and to model off of or to find great people from, and there's people with that experience. And so you just touched on it a little bit, but uh, whether it's raising money or just talking to customers, so many of them are excited about getting involved in Atlanta. They realize it's an upcoming city. It's uh, in technology. It has more and more investment. It has more and more technology startups. So many of them are excited about getting somehow involved in Atlanta. And what's interesting is we haven't actually had to recruit outside as much. We're not really moving people into Atlanta all that often. We're really finding great local talent. But I think... Uh, What's really interesting is you guys talked about it a little bit before is you really have to have that just high growth mindset that you're not looking to be a sole proprietor if you're starting a technology company and trying to grow really fast. You're not looking to do everything. Obviously, at first you are because you're the only person in the room to do anything. But then as you develop, I think what we've learned is you constantly have to be looking for uh, where can someone be better than I can and how can I enable them to be better than I am and kind of get out of their way in the sense that as the founder or CEO, you have to really lead the vision, the mission, the people, find the best people, retain them, and make sure they're collectively going the same direction, and ultimately make sure there's money in the bank to do so. But you always have to be finding the people who, when it comes to a role, they're better at it than you ever could be and enabling them to do it very effectively. Well, so, you know, when we were talking to Andrew earlier about local industries, so much of it is improving culture, retaining culture making the culture really represent um, what the business is all about, you're building a culture from scratch. You, you, you really, it's, it, it's, a, it's a tough proposition. You have to build a functioning revenue-generating business, but you also have to build a community of people um, that can really, where the business is not dependent upon the founder. And so how are you balancing, you got to build a, you know, revenue but you also have to build a company that really cares about this mission. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with what our focus has been for the last six, eight months. Um, like I said, we've in the past four months, I believe we've doubled our team. We've eight times our revenue with one client. Overall, we've almost 5X'd our revenue in the last six months. So we're growing really fast. And as that happens, you kind of get in these periods where it's almost like a, a grace period of everyone's so excited, but then it all falls back to okay, now we're operating, we're pushing forward, we have to actually have a good core culture, a good core mission. And I think it really comes down to, at, like, like you said, at first, you have to really be deciding what you do at the right times is the hard part of a founder. You can't focus on culture and things that are later down the line. The first day when you're the only person in the room, you can, but it's not common. You have to really be balancing, okay, I want to grow revenue and I want to do these things 
so that I have the freedom or have the people to where I actually need to put a culture in place. But then once you start getting more and more people, it's all about hiring around culture and even firing around culture and making sure that culture is really communicated to everyone. Well, culture is going to happen one way or another, whether you plan for it or you don't plan for it. I'm sure Andrew could speak to that. Well, culture is the, <laughs> it's what people do when no one's looking, you know, it's the accepted behaviors there. And mm-hmm. so, yeah, there's, you could have a bad culture just like you have a good culture. <laughs> right. But if you don't, or if you're not mindful about it, it's going to form. It's like branding. Branding happens whether you're doing it or not. And same thing there. Now, when you're hiring so quickly, at first, I'm sure it's you're getting to know each person as an individual, but at some point, there are just a lot of bodies are coming in play. You have to have strong systems and processes. Um, how much exactly. of your time is spent on that rather than the actual work that they're going to be doing, but more on we got to build the machine that puts these people in a position to be successful as quickly as possible. Yeah, so a lot of my uh, focus now is really uh, business operations to make sure that we have the right so cultural norms and cultural expectations and values in place that are communicated to our team with the right hiring process, onboarding process, so that it enables a lot of that scaling and fast growth. And so it, it definitely has shifted from where originally it was, I was the only one recruiting and the only one right. hiring. And so if someone in if our sales team needed someone, I'm the only person who's so, going to go try right. to find one. They're uh, calling you. Exactly. And it became your problem. Exactly. And it goes back to enabling people. So you have to be able to say, okay, to the salesperson or the sales leader, you know our culture, you know our values, you know the position and roadmap, enabling them to do those first steps, but still putting the right process in place to have. So what we do now is like a departmental, a department will hire, will go out to find that person, but then a committee of either the founders, including myself and my co-founder, Jacob Boudreau, who's our CTO, or at least one other person in the company who's not at all related to that department, has to be on more of a culture and values committee right. where you actually meet the person, you can validate that this person's good <laughs> right. for the team because you can't just have unilateral hiring decisions from uh, when you're this early because you can really just kind of get a lot of different small cultures within departments. Right. You have to really be sure that they work to look together. look at it holistically. The, exactly. And work together as a team overall. What... Um I'm, I'm going to ask the same question I asked Andrew. And, and certainly you, you have been, well, really, you know nothing else besides being an entrepreneur. Um, but it has generally been kind of on your own terms. Um, what have you found that is surprising about actually building a company? Yeah, it's a great question. And um, a, a long time ago when I was doing more just like e-commerce type businesses for myself, and I still have a lot of friends in that space, it's really different to be in that mindset of like, you'll read books like the four hour work week where someone's like, I want to go lay on a beach and run a business for <laughs> right. my computer. Well, money just, while uh, I sleep. Exactly. Right. It's way different, a way different goal from I want to build a lasting organization. And to do that though, you do have to come in the office and have people who are your, one of your key constituents, your employees team, right. and your, your team and being with them every single day and, making sure you're collectively going in the same direction. Is and getting different. venture capital. I mean, that was a choice. That's a strategic choice. But now you got other people that have opinions and say in the matter. Exactly. And so I think for me, it's been, you got to identify early on what your goal is with the company. And I think uh, my co-founder and I are very aligned on what we want to do is build a massive organization. This is a global problem. Uh, the problem we're fixing is roughly $163 billion of spend a year globally. It's something that every enterprise, every mid-sized business, and even All small the world business faces is, right. globally. The biggest, one of the biggest issues we have in our sales is that we'll talk to a company and they'll say, this is great. 
are you doing this globally? Like we have this problem in right. Southeastern Asia. And, and like, it's a chicken and egg, right? You got to get the warehouse folks on board as well as the clients. Exactly. We got to develop supply and we got to develop customers at the right. same time. And so when we look at it, it, it was clear that we're trying to really uh, – take this big. We see it as a big problem and a big solution. And our mission is a huge change in how an organization operates their supply chain. And so that's why we chose to take on venture capital is to really scale that. Uh, We saw early on, it wasn't going to be that hard to reach profitability if we just wanted to be a small business. Right. If you wanted to just organically grow it, you could have done that over time, but not at the speed that you need to scale. Exactly. But if we want to really make the impact we want to have, then you have to think about what your end goal is and then kind of build around that and uh, and grow around that. So if you're looking to be a sole proprietor where you don't report to anyone, you can kind of right. do whatever you want. It's probably not the route for you to say, I want to build a massive organization right. or I want to raise venture capital. To do that, you have to be more mission focused where you say, okay, here's really the end and where we think we can take this and then be willing to grow. So that's that's a very uh, you've you've laid out the vision of what you want the company to be. Um, we talked about how you know startup years are very different from normal years. <laughs> so let's say that we're meeting up in twelve months. Um, all the renovations at Colony Square are finished. Uh, we're having a drink at establishment. Uh, what, what what are you going to talk to me about? What's happened in the past year? What's stored? Yeah, it's a great question. So right now we really we're both seeing our customer life cycles play out really well. So how we start with an enterprise and they grow really fast. So we have contract values that we never expected and they're growing really fast. So I think not only will it be just a larger company from a revenue perspective, we'll likely in twelve months have done a Series A financing, um, raised another round of money, uh, and will probably be a close to closer to like a high forties fifty person team. And then are you going to have offices around the country? Is that part of the roadmap? So right now we're really concentrated in Atlanta. Um, We've thought about, does it make sense at some point to like a spaces or we work open a small satellite office if there's something we need to recruit. So one of the things about us is we're so uh, nationally focused right now that the majority of our customer volume actually goes through Oakland or sorry, New Jersey, then Oakland, then Dallas. And so does it make sense for us to, for example, open something small in New York for a few engineers, but also to be, if we need to recruit engineers, but also be really close to where our customer base is. Uh, Right now, that's not anywhere in a roadmap. It's a conversation, but we're pretty concentrated on Atlanta. I love it. Atlanta pride. Um, If someone is listening and wants to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do it? Yeah, absolutely. You can either go to our website at store.com, S-T-O-R-D.com, or email me at Sean at store.com. So S-E-A-N at S-T-O-R-D.com. And you need more clients, more warehouse, more uh, um, talent. You probably need everything right now, right? Yeah, for us right now, I mean, main search is talent, finding the best people. So anyone who's listening to this and wants to send me an email, whether it's (laughs) yourself or uh, you know some great people, please uh, love to get connected as we're always expanding, but then also... Uh, clients, businesses who are distributing products or moving products overall. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for coming in, Sean. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right, one more. Okay. Last but not least, Stephen Wegner. How you doing? The moment we've been waiting for. Doing well. How are you? (laughs) Good. So, Stephen, you are Senior Director of Operations at NOC. That's right. Okay. Very, very classic, uh, you know, tech company, just one word um, (laughs) company name. So, tell us about NOC. And what uh, Knox's goal is? What are you trying to disrupt? Yeah, so we are the first uh, home trade-in platform where 
customers who are selling a house and also buying can come to us and we'll help get them moved into their new house and then sell their old house for them. Um, our, really, our goal is to bring more certainty and convenience as well as bringing down the cost of the uh, transaction and experience for buying and selling homes. So so let's talk through the experience of working with Knox. So I think what we're all used to in terms of buying a home is you have a real estate agent, real estate agent takes you around town, you find some houses you like, you put in an offer, hopefully it gets accepted, you negotiate a price, you go to closing, you're done, you're in that house for a number of years, then you go to the real estate agent again, and you say, I'd like to sell it, he says, you need to do these renovations to it, you have an open house, people come, put an offer, you get a price, you close, you move on. So how is the process different when working with Knock? Yeah, absolutely, great question. Uh, so part of the challenge is really understanding the timing as a customer, whether to find the new house first and then get moved in, have two mortgages and sell the old house, or maybe you sell the old house first, don't have some place to live, or you rent for an interim period until you find the new house. So there's really a lot of uncertainty around kind of what to do first and how to approach the overall uh, experience for moving. Uh, with Knock, um, you're able to come to us. We'll get you a price on your old home with what with which we think it'll sell for using our um, data science based pricing algorithms. Um, so you have kind of an understanding of what the house will sell for. Uh, we then help you find the new house. You know your dream home. Get you. We Knock actually buys that new house for you. We get you moved in. Uh, if there are any renovations you want to do on the new house, we take care of that for you. Once moved in, we'll then also take care of any home preparation to get the home to, to get your old house ready for the market. We'll list it on the market, get it sold, and then transfer the new house into your name. Interesting. So, and, and this is this is personal experience. So, we we have a house that we've had for a couple of years. It's more of a five to seven year purchase, and at a certain point, it'll be too small, and we need another one. So, I come to knock, and I say, "This is where I want to be. Let's find me that perfect house." You buy my house, but I have a grace period in which I don't have to get out of that house until I get a new one, so I don't have a double mortgage. No, we actually buy the new house for you. Ah. So we buy that new home for you. We get you moved into that new house. We then take care of all the stuff that you have to deal with on the old home while you're actually moved into the new house, such as the renovation and repairs on the old home. You don't have to be... Uh, getting notifications an hour ahead of some agent showing your old house. You're you're not even there. Um, so the old house is on the market and shown while you're not there. Um, we take care of all that for you. And then once that old house sells, we basically transfer the title and ownership under that new house back to you, the customer. Interesting. Okay. And so that takes so much of the friction out of the process. Exactly. Now, how how far in advance should he contact you? If he has a five-year plan, how far in advance should he be calling you? I mean, you can get in touch with us at any time to better understand the experience, but um, because of our uh, you know, data science approach to pricing the old homes, we'd really want to finalize that price on your old home once you're actually ready to begin the moving process. Mm-hmm. And how, how, in terms of compensation, how does it work as opposed to a traditional agent? If you're a seller, you know, normally you're paying 3% to each agent, so total 6% um, commission. How does that compare with NOC? Yeah, it's the exact same with NOC. Okay. Um, so our revenue is the 6% uh, commission for selling the old house. 3% of that goes to the buyer's agent for whoever buys that old house. Mm-hmm. And then NOC actually also receives 3% as the buying agent for the new house. So net we net 6% on the transaction, but it's the same um, you know, that you would get with any of your traditional real estate agents. So similar cost, but obviously very, very different experience. Exactly. So let, let's back up a little bit. Um, 
real estate technology is is extremely well extremely interesting to me not just because I am in real estate although from a commercial perspective it's interesting because I think it is one of the last major industries to truly be disrupted by technology um, I this is my own personal thesis that people who are in real estate are not as technologically savvy because they really um, connect with what you can touch, see, and feel. Um, frankly, I, I, that's one of the reasons that I love real estate because it is the world around me. Uh, that probably lends itself to folks who maybe aren't as willing to adopt technology early. But companies uh, you know, who are involved in residential real estate technology have been blowing up recently. So I'm going to read some recent headlines about Knock. In all in the past 18 months... Atlanta online real estate firm Knock racks up $32.5 million from Silicon Valley. As competition to disrupt home sales heats up, startup Knock plans roll out to 10 new cities. Knock is one of the ambitious entries in Atlanta real estate. Knock real estate gaining popularity, talking about how you've moved into Charlotte, Raleigh, and Dallas. So, again, a lot has happened with you guys in the last 18 months. Why is there all this interest in, you, in your company? Why are you guys so good at what you do? Yeah, I think to your point, um, you know, real estate really is one of the last industries to be disrupted by technology. Um, you know, two of our two of our founding members at Knock were also co-founders at Trulia, and that was back in 2005. And really, with Trulia and Zillow, it uh, democratized a lot of the data that helped buyers make decisions um, and do research uh, for you know, listings and homes on the market. Uh, but it really hasn't benefited sellers since then. So, you know. 13 years later, here we are, and you know, the costs are still the same as what they once were. There's still a lot of opacity um, in the overall experience. You don't get the um, you know, that on-demand experience as a customer that you get in other uh, you know, transactions such as Uber, Amazon, things like that. Um, so there's a lot of opportunity for technology to make that more efficient and transparent and improve the experience for customers. And we see that that's what con consumers are demanding. And, you know, we see a tremendous opportunity to bring that experience to them. So I, I just brought up a lot of Sunbelt. Uh, it's Sunbelt Cities in the article um, about where you're expanding. Is that purely by nature of the fact that you're in Atlanta, it's easy, you understand the Sunbelt, or is there something about Sunbelt residential real estate that really works for Knock right now? Yeah, so there was several reasons why Atlanta was the first city that we're in. Um, you know, one is the... Um, dynamics of the housing market specifically where the home price reflects much more of the average American city versus, you know, places like San Francisco and New York, um, which is a lot higher and a lot more volatile. So easier to use um, kind of data science and algorithmic based approach to actually um, accurately price homes. Uh, additionally, it has such a diversity of industry, which we've kind of already talked about a little bit, um, you know, with major CPG, um, airline, um, you know, finance, a lot of these different industries are present in Atlanta and growing. Um, and so also able to withstand more of a downturn like we saw in 2008. And so um, that was a factor to consider as well. Um, and we're really looking to expand in cities, at least initially, that, you know, also reflect those dynamics. That, that definitely makes sense. And I, I'm sure it would be, it's easier for an early stage company to target that initially. Do you see an opportunity for knock in some of those more, um, 
complicated urban markets? Is there a different iteration of the product that makes sense there? Or is it just about growing the company to the point where it makes sense to tackle those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's exactly right. Okay. So we, we talked, we, we said at the, you know, at the top of this, you're the senior director of operations. What exactly does that mean? What does your day-to-day look like? Yeah, great question. Um, so we have, um, you know, several teams, um, that, you know, specialized across different areas of uh, the overall customer experience, um, including pricing homes, uh, home improvement, um, transaction coordination to make sure that folks go through a smooth closing process. Um, all of these different teams are kind of specialized to um, help support our licensed local experts, um, Knox agents, um, in order to provide a better experience for the customer and you know facilitate a smooth transaction. Um, and so those are the kind of the teams that I lead. Uh, you know, those folks who are providing those uh, support operations for our agents and for our customers. Okay. Um, and in terms of working with Knock, okay, we, we, we talked about the, the general experience of doing so, but there's obviously a wide array of homes in Atlanta. You've got everything from your teardown to your you know, multi-million dollar mansion off of West Paces Ferry. And so is there a sweet spot for the type of customer uh, whether it is truly a type of customer, whether it's a uh, you know band of home pricing that you guys are going after, yeah. So our target um, price range is around the one hundred and fifty to five hundred price range, but you know we are also um, equipped to handle and you know case by case basis other uh, other types of customers, but those are really our sweet spot. Okay, and is that just because it's a little bit more of a simple purchase that you can automate as opposed to you know a massive estate? No, a lot of it has to do with, um, one, being able to accurately price homes. Uh, it's That's really where the wheel, our wheelhouse is in terms of being able to um, price those houses. Additionally, such an important part of our process is um, – you know, the speed with which you go through the overall experience. Um, as you may know, if you have a much higher priced home, it may be on the market for a lot longer. And we're really targeting, um, you know, that price range where we can actually um, accurately predict how long it will take and get folks moved out quickly. So that's that's actually a good, good segue. So in terms of uh, the life cycle of a customer in a transaction, what's the average time that someone spends with you from, you know, when they buy the new home to when they get out of their old home? It varies so widely. Um, It it depends a lot on what the customer's needs are and their preferences, how long they want to spend looking for a home. Um, So that that really does vary on a case-by-case basis. Okay. What's your personal best? Personal best? Yeah, of how the fastest somebody's done the whole transaction. Uh, I would I'd have to go look on it, but I think uh, they we've had people who have done the whole thing in a matter of a few weeks. Wow. So now you want the person that's choosing, is it like, hey, should I go with a traditional agent or brokerage form or knock? Is that what you want? It, it all depends In on terms. what the customer's needs are. Um, you know, we think that we provide an um, awesome value proposition for folks who are looking for that convenience, having the ability to um, – you know, be selective on the home that they want and allow Knock to help get them into that home. Um, a lot of the people that we work with also um, don't have the um, ability to, you know, go through the process of selling their old house. Uh, a lot of um, families with young kids, for example, who don't want to have, you know, contractors in their home right. um, while the kids are at home, don't want to have to get, you know, get everybody on the road to allow the house to be shown. Um, so, yeah, we think that we serve a wide variety of customers and can provide a great experience, but it all depends on the needs of the consumer. But your value proposition, it, for me, in terms of a investment of my 
resource of my money, I'm not paying really any different. That's right. But I'm getting a lot more convenience and services exactly. with Knock than I am with a traditional bro- broker. Exactly. You know, your your comment about um, that family that, uh, I mean, sure, they have the capability to hire a residential broker, but going through that process um, really hit a home. It's actually something I've thought about. Like, we have a toddler, a dog, and a cat. And I have thought to myself, all right, we're going to sell this house at some point. It's going to be, you know, in maybe three or four years. There'll probably be another child at that point. How do we have people come over? Do we have to, like, you know, take them all? Yeah, you have to get them all out of there. Um, that is a very, very relevant point for people with, with young kids. Yep. Yeah, and we, and, you know, our, speaking to our culture, one of our core values is people first. Um, and we really want to... Um, have customers not have to worry about what's going on with the sale of their house, the sale of their house, and be able to continue to live their lives and not put things on pause um, for this transaction. And we want to be able to provide that um, to our customers. Well, and it's incredible to think about what this transaction is normally like um, for what for most people is the most valuable possession they have owned and will ever own. Um, there's really no technology involved whatsoever for the most important purchase and, uh, you know, generally a big sign of your wealth for years to come. Right. But Knock is removing a lot of the friction when it comes time to make that transaction happen. Removing right? a lot of the friction, uh, providing that convenience, and, you know, ultimately the goal is to also bring that cost down. You know, Sean, our CEO, often speaks to the American dream being alive and well. Um, you know, people want to own a house, but it's often also what holds you back from, you know, moving on to other opportunities. Right. Um, and so we want to be able to enable, um, you know, our customers to to do that in a simple and certain way. Now, you, you mentioned you're in different markets. Now, say I get relocated to Dallas. Or does this knock system work for me moving out of the market of Atlanta? Yep, absolutely. Um, so so yeah. that's a tremendous value. Yep, and we've done that for um, a number of customers where they've been moving from you know Dallas to the Carolinas um, or Atlanta to Charlotte or vice versa. Right. Um, and so we have a team of licensed local experts in each market that can help with help them on each side of that transaction. Now, are you helping me get the best price for my home when I'm selling it and getting the le- the lowest, most competitive price when I'm buying? Exactly, because when we buy the house for you, you know, we come in as an all-cash offer, um, and so that um, you know, allows us to, um, often, in, in often cases, get a better price for the customer or um, you know, help win a bidding war if, if the you know, dynamics of that are present. So um, you know, we are trying to get our customers their dream house for the best price. What what is your uh, what's your consumer education like? Because I could imagine it's you're negotiating with uh, someone, and it's not it's not Joey Klein initially buying the home. It's Knock coming in and offering all cash, and this person saying, "Who the hell is Knock?" And what what is this? I mean, you know, there's there's very few people who can put an all cash offer like that. So have you had to deal with consumer education and has that been a hindrance to deals getting done or do people catch on pretty quickly and it just, you know, goes along as normally as it would? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, so our team of licensed local experts who are in each market, um, you know, they're very, 
um, well inundated in the process and are able to, um, you know, break it down for customers in a way that they can understand. Obviously, you kind of want to start with the big picture and then kind of get into the details um, as needed, um, which in often cases is. Um, and so, you know, they go through that part of that education process, making sure that they fully understand um, what's going on and that they're a right fit for the program. Okay. And so we, we talked a little bit earlier about, you know, the money that you guys have raised, the success that you've had really in a very short period of time. Um, what what does the next 18 months look like? What sort of headlines are we going to be reading about you at that point? Yeah, so, I mean, we have, uh, we're continuing to grow in each of the markets that we're in and also looking to expand um, to other markets nationally, um, continuing into next year in 2020. Um, so we're continuing to evaluate um, what those right markets are to enter and the timing to do so. Um, and so, you know, our goal is to continue to grow and have a presence in uh, increasingly more markets uh uh, across the country and a bigger presence in the ones that we're in. And so does that entail hiring new people and opening up new offices around the country? Or are you trying to do as much from your Atlanta home base as you can? So we have a lot of the operational staff in Atlanta, but we have to be uh, in each market. You know, we need our team of licensed local experts and the knock agents uh, on the ground in market who are familiar um, with residential real estate and, you know, the nuances that you see across different states and uh, even metro areas can can differ within a state. Um, So we need that local knowledge and, you know, we'll have teams in each of those markets. Okay. we, we have talked about comparing your process to that of a traditional residential agent. Um, I could imagine that there's a lot of residential agents out there who see you guys as competition. Um, do you see yourselves as competition and getting, you know, uh, getting rid of maybe some of the more simple transactions um, that technology can handle in the marketplace? Or is there a place where you see you know, the best in the business from a residential agency perspective as partners? Yeah, I, th- I think it's um, not an either or. Um, yeah, I think that you know, we already do partner with a lot of um, agents who are with different brokerages across the city um, as part of the NOC network. Um, it, you know, additionally, I think we're starting to see some of these other um, more well-known um, brokerages continuing to you know evolve their services as well. So I think it's going to you know to a certain extent um, continue to you know both will continue to evolve. It, it really is like so many industries today that if you cannot keep up with the technological change and if you just want it to be the way that it was, then you're probably not going to do very well. You might fall by the wayside. But for those that can embrace technology, learn a way for it to enhance their business, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, and I think uh, you know the key thing to keep in mind is uh, you know, the customer comes first, and you know our goal is to provide the best experience to our customers. Um, and I think that you will, you'll continue to see that, and you, like technology will be increasingly leveraged in order to do so. Yeah, not going anywhere. Um, so if someone has listened to this and uh, says, "Oh my God, I I have to test out these knock people. I got to see what their services are like." What's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Yeah, so um, you know you can visit knock.com. Um, you know, our phone number's on our website, but the simplest way would be submit your address uh, through the uh, submission form that's on our front on our homepage, um, and you, know, you can get your trade-in price um, pretty immediately, and you know begin the conversation there with one of our licensed local experts if interested in selling your house. Oh, so you can literally go on your website, put in all the information about your home, how many bedrooms and square feet, and all all, all that fun stuff, um, and it will spit out a value uh, without 
ever having to talk to a human being. Obviously, they can engage with you after that, but you'll get a number pretty quickly. Yeah, you'll you'll receive a price range yeah. uh, for what we um, you know, how we would value the house based on our pricing algorithms, um, and then we would also um, have someone from our team actually visit your house to factor in all of the you know nuance and. Um, you know, specific features to your home to actually accurately uh, get to a final price. That, that, and that, that can take, you know, a matter of days. Yeah, that's a really nice uh, marriage of technology and human contact. Exactly. That's great. Um, okay, well, Stephen, thanks a lot for coming on. Thanks, Joey. All right, great job, Joey. Um, this was a special edition of Atlanta Business Radio where we're supporting some of Atlanta's most exciting early stage companies. I thank each and every one of you for sharing your story today. And thank you, Joey Klein with JLL for making this show possible. We will see you all next time on Atlanta Business Radio.